What's up, Renaissance family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Major shout out to everyone joining us for our online service. Hey, before I get started in today's message, uh, I want to pray for us. Uh, so Heavenly Father, I'm always grateful for opportunities to crack open your word. Lord, I pray that your words will reach our hearts and that we would receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in just a couple of weeks, we are going to start our regathering process in person. And again, make no uh, mistake about it, online is here to stay. So all of our friends watching online, we're working really, really hard to put together a really incredible online experience for you, even when we start our regathering process. And we have had uh, an amazing response from so many people who want to volunteer uh, and help us to be a part uh, of this regathering process. And if you haven't hopped on that boat just yet, it's not too late. You can also fill out the links in the email that we sent to be a part of that process as well. Now, I feel like we're friends and I feel like we, we know each other. And there's something about me that I feel like if you're gonna be my friend, you need to know this about me and it's a confession. I struggle greatly with hanger. Now, some people, when they're hungry, they get despondent or sad, not me. Uh, when I get hungry, I turn into the Incredible Hulk. Now, in so many ways, um, when, when I first met my wife, we were doing this thing, which I like to call used car salesman dating. Now, a used car salesman is going to present the best parts of any car or vehicle to kind of pull the wool over your eyes and get you in that 1997 Honda Accord. And there were parts of myself that I was keeping back from my wife. So we would go out to lunch or to dinner and the waiter would come over and he or she would say, do you know what you want? My wife, she loves to talk. Uh, and we'd be looking at the menu. She'd say, you know what? I don't know what I want yet. Can you come back? And me, dying on the inside, I would just look at the waiter with a fake smile and say, yeah, yeah. No, no, we need, we need some more time. We need some more time, as if I wanted that as well. But on the inside, I was absolutely crumbling and turning into the Incredible Hulk. But now my wife, she knows that I can hide it no longer. She gets the real me, and you need, to do, you need to know the real me as well. Whenever we go out, if we're ever eating, if we're at a church and chill, uh, wherever we are, I got to eat in order to be a functional human being. Now, because of that, a piece of me has a lot of sympathy for the characters in this text that we're going to read in this account in, in Exodus. These are men and women just like me and you who, man, they're dealing with hunger, and their hunger leads them to do something which the Bible like prohibits, something called complaining or, or grumbling. Now, I want to read the scripture in Exodus 16. We were reading this passage a couple weeks ago, but man, this is a different angle on the same text. Here's what it says in Exodus 16. It says, The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. Now, that's a really important timeline. I want you to park that in your brain. So 15th day of the second month after they left Egypt. So the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted, unlimited breadsticks. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. 
This way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron go to all the Israelites. This evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you are to complain about us? Moses continued. The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now, as a fellow hangry person, uh, I read this scripture and a, a big piece of me has some sympathy for the children of Israel. They're hungry. They're confused. They're scared. But what is it about grumbling that is so prohibited? Now, if you were to read through the New Testament, so many authors pick up on this one scenario here in the book of Exodus, and they talk about this scenario of God's people complaining and grumbling in the wilderness, not just as something that they shouldn't have done, but that it was sinful, that it was something that actually kept them in the wilderness and something that actually prevented some of God's children here who were complaining from ever entering to God's rest. Grumbling erodes us. Wherever you see grumbling happen in any community of people, man, it really does start to unravel that, that community. Here's one good way that I've heard grumbling described. It says, grumbling complaints directly or indirectly declare that God is not sufficiently good, faithful, loving, wise, powerful, or competent. Otherwise, he would treat us better or run the universe more effectively. Now, there are healthier alternatives to grumbling. And why do I say grumbling is, is so destructive to our faith? Now, over the last couple of years, I've thought about different paradigms and different ways that we can explore our spiritual formation. And one of the most helpful things that I've found over the years is this triangle of formation. Now, don't get deep. The only reason I'm calling it a triangle you know, it's not some Illuminati anything. It's just because there are three points and a triangle has three sides. Now, everything about your formation, uh, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on, on a call, everything about your formation is based on your narrative, the things that you are believing, the stories that you're believing, your community, the people that you are in close proximity with and that are speaking into your life, and also your habits, the things that you do over and over again. Now, what grumbling does is it affects negatively all three. It affects your narrative by telling you that God is not good, wise, loving, powerful, and you start to rehearse these stories in your head. Before you know it, you're going to start to develop a narrative about God, which is the opposite from true. It also really negatively impacts communities where you have complaining and grumbling happening in communities. Man, it is like poisonous. It like takes all of the energy out of the room. It takes all of the faith out of the room. And it really is something that is a challenge and it kills our habits. One of the first thing that grumbling does as it negatively impacts our narrative, what we believe about God, uh, as it really negatively impacts our communities, what it really does is it stops you from the, the means of grace that God wants to give you to feed you, to encourage you. When I'm grumbling, I'm not meditating and reading scripture. All I'm doing is just complaining. So where does, where does this grumbling uh, and complaining come from? Here in the, in the text, we see a couple of different things. And one of the first things I, I love about this concept of grumbling and complaining is it, it comes from an inner place. 
So Jackie Hill Perry, she tweeted this, and this is where I get most of my, uh, my sermon points from Twitter. Uh, our words reveal what our hearts hide. I'm going to say that again because it was kind of deep. Our words reveal what our hearts hide. Jesus said it even better. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this grumbling and complaining that the Israelites had here in Exodus 16, it really was a, a heart issue. Now, here's what I found to be true about my own life, and you might find this to be true about your life as well. Like grumbling and complaining is not based solely on a situation, but it is revealed by our situations. So whatever situation you find yourself in, personal, uh, church-wide, uh, at work, uh, in a variety of situations, wherever you find yourself complaining about, internally or externally, it's really a heart issue. And guess what? It's not based on your situation because there are other people in your situation that are not complaining about it. Uh, one of the, the giants in my life was the patriarch of our family, um, Cousin George. He recently passed away at 101 years young. And Cousin George was a giant in, in many respects. He was very tall. Um, that's where I got my height from. No. Um, but in, in reality, he was a giant in faith. But Cousin George never had a lot of money. Um, he actually really never had any money. He grew up um, not the wealthiest person and didn't have, you know, major bank account. But when you go to his house, even though he really only did have just enough for the essentials, like he was the most joy filled man that I have ever been around. Like anybody that has ever been around Cousin George, I could hear his laugh right now. He was so full of joy. And there were so many things that he did not have that I take for granted that, man, if I were in his situation, I don't know that I would find myself being content. I think I would be complaining a whole lot more about my situation. Now, if you put me in his shoes, I probably would have complained a lot. But one thing I've learned about cousin from Cousin George is that our situations do not cause us to be discontent. Our situations don't make us complain and grumble. Our situations reveal something on the inside of our hearts that is an inner discontentment. I once heard this one quote by a man named Alphonse Carr. He says, some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I am thankful that thorns have roses. There's a number of ways you can interpret your situation right now. Um, but grumbling is certainly not one of the ones that God wants you to do. Now, what causes this discontentment in our hearts that leads us to grumble? And the, the biggest thing is, is comparison. Man, oh man, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of contentment. Comparison is one of the things that will lead you down a, a, a path of, of grumbling and complaining. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my, my son at uh, T-ball practice. Um, he may or may not be on a path to being shortstop with the Yankees. No pressure. But um, as soon as we get to uh, the practice, you know, he's taking swings. I'm like, yo, he's actually all right, though. Like, he's actually pretty good. And then I turn and look at the other field, and there's a kid a little bit older, not as good looking. But he, like, this kid had a swing, man. I mean, like, he to be five or six years old, he's on steroids. He's, I don't know if he's on steroids, but he's doing something illegal that makes him as good as he is. I may or may not be salty, but the second I had some comparison, I immediately became discontent. I immediately started to not appreciate what I had, which is a healthy child who's having fun. 
um, and it's playing in the dirt. That wasn't the greatest part, but discontentment didn't come until comparison really truly entered. And I'm, I'll say that in jest, but there's also been a series of situations in my life where uh, I was happy, I was content, or I thought I was at least, until I started to compare myself to another situation. I was content with my leadership until I compared myself with another pastor. I was content with my apartment until I compared myself with someone with outdoor space. I was content with something in my life until I compared myself to someone else. And one of the things that leads us towards grumbling and complaining is comparison. And here's what you see in the children of Israel in verse three. They say, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died at the Lord's hand in Egypt, here's what they say. When we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread that we wanted, instead, you brought us out, out into this wilderness to make this a whole assembly die of hunger. What were they doing? They were comparing their present situation where God had led them to what they previously had. One of the biggest challenges to thriving where God has you right now in this moment is comparing it to something in the past or to someone else in a completely different situation. So comparison is a huge one and there is no win in comparison. The quickest way to hop on the train of grumbling, the express train of grumbling is by comparing yourself. And the second one is more personal and it's things a little bit more and it's pride. A lot of time there is an inner discontentment in our lives that leads to grumbling because of this manifestation of pride in our lives. It flows from a heart that says, God, I deserve better than what you are giving me. And this was the original sin of Satan himself. Now, the antidote to this discontentment is something we see actually in Psalm 131, where David says, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not too haughty. I do not get involved in things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. David mentions a couple of things here in Psalm 131 that I think would undo a lot of the grumbling and discontentment in our lives. One is acknowledging our, our pride and saying, Lord, there's some things that I know are too wonderful and too complex for me to understand. So I won't even pretend like I understand all things. And it's going to God for God to truly fill us with what he offers us and to put our hope in God, not just now, but forever. So one, grief, uh, grumbling is, it reveals the inner discontentment in our hearts. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, the second thing is, uh, grumbling is accusatory. It's like directed at a person. But what we see as the alternative in scripture is not grumbling, but it's, it's grief. Grief is lamenting a situation. So grief is crying out to God in lament, in sorrow. And we need, as a, as a part of our discipleship rhythm, as a, as a part of following Jesus, to truly develop the spiritual discipline of grief. We talk about this often and I don't think people really understand how vital it is for you and I to be able to thrive, to navigate complex and difficult situations if we don't strengthen this muscle of grief. Because what we don't grieve, we will grumble about. And God has given us healthy alternatives like grief in our lives. So 
pick a situation today, Asian hate, police violence, um, the economy, uh, division, whatever you want to think about that truly is full, that is f- filling you with, with sorrow. It might be those big national events or it might be something that's, that's personal, miscarriage, unmet expectations, uh, can't find a job that you like, um, can't afford the apartment that you want to live in. I mean, there's a, a number of situations that cause legitimate and genuine sorrow. Now, what will fuel you to be able to continue to trust God in spite of difficult situations is this release valve of grief. Grief is coming to God with your true, unedited thoughts, not accusing God, but laying out all your complaints before him. Not accusing God of being unwise or not governing the universe in, uh, in the way that you would have done it. But, but grief truly comes to God in sorrow and sadness. And I think the reason we don't express grief is because grumbling is more convenient. Grumbling is getting at the emotion of anger. And I think that because of our emotional immaturity, we're really only comfortable expressing a couple of emotions. We're really comfortable being happy and we're comfortable also being angry. But that wide swath of emotions in between of grief and fear and sadness, we would just rather not go there. So it's more convenient for us to just grumble and to complain. But what if instead of grumbling and complaining, you thought to yourself, what am I, what am I fearful of? Ask yourself these two questions. What am I sad about? And what am I fearful of? But one thing I've learned in therapy for the last decade is that anger is a mask emotion. Oftentimes we are angry as a mask emotion for real sadness and real fear. In this past couple of uh, months and year, I mean, there's been a couple of things that have just really truly filled me with fear and with sadness. And I find myself becoming really angry, not just at the situation, but at, at God. Like, God, how could you allow this situation to happen in my life? And all the time, it's really truly a mask for, for, for fear and for sadness. So we talked about this before. I don't know if you've ever done it, but today might be the day where you finally pay attention. Um, but here's what I would love for you to do. And this was what I do. I did this today. I want you to set a timer for 10 minutes and I want you to hit start. And for 10 minutes, I want you to explore everything that is making you feel afraid and everything that is making you feel sad. And by doing that, that is practicing grief. You will find that as a, a real relief valve, release valve that will prevent you from grumbling and you would allow you to grieve situationally the things in your life, the circumstances that are painful and harmful and sad without turning it to accusatory grumbling at God, which is rooted in pride and discontentment. So number one, grumbling reveals this inner discontentment in our hearts. Number two, grumbling is really accusatory at God, um, but grief is lamenting a situation, right? So in verse eight, Moses says, the Lord will give you meat to eat this, this evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So grumbling really truly does reveal this accusatory uh, nature against God. And the last thing I wanna talk about today, which is something that I'm very guilty of, is grumbling discounts God's previous works. 
So earlier today, I told you to bookmark this, uh, the timing of the scripture. It says, this is like, they're in the wilderness on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. Now, let me catch y'all up for those of us who are, who are new to Renaissance and haven't been rocking with us uh, through Exodus. Exodus starts off with a man named Moses, who is uh, a boy, a young boy. And when, when Moses is a young boy, the children of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for, at this point, over 400 years. As Moses become a man, God comes to him and says, I have come down. I have seen the misery of my people. I have come down to free them from their oppression. Now, 400 years is a very long time. What 400 years does to the psyche of a people who have been, who have been enslaved for this long is at a certain point, it robs the imagination to believe anything else could be different. Through a miraculous set of events, first starting with some plagues, God frees his people from 430 years of oppression and 40 something days later, they're complaining in the wilderness, wishing they can go backwards. What grumbling does in its pride and its discontentment is it really truly robs us of perspective and it discounts God's previous work in our lives. What if they would have sat down and thought about all the things that God had done for them? What would that have led them to? Would it have led them to faith to say, listen, I don't know how all of this is going to happen. I don't know how we're going to be provided with food, but I do know the God that freed us from Egypt, the God that split the Red Sea, the God that killed our enemies and gave us triumph over them. This same God is going to see to it that we, we, we eat some food and that they would have had a completely different uh, posture altogether. What grumbling does in our life in, in so many different ways is it makes us, it suppresses the memories of God's faithfulness in our life. And by rehearsing God's, by rehearsing our complaints, it actually elevates them and it makes us forget of what God has done in our lives. Now, there are practical things that God has done for you, for so, for so many of you. And then there are spiritual things that God has done for everyone who has placed their faith in Christ. Man, the other day I was thinking about uh, some of the situations that I was just pretty angry about. And I looked at the dinner table and I looked at, you know, my wife and my kids and, uh, you know, praise God right now, everybody's healthy. We, you know, we feel good. And I thought about all the friends I have that check in on me, thought about my family and other people. And I was like, yo, Lord, I really have so much to be thankful for. Like I'm sitting here in an apartment in the greatest neighborhood in the world, in the greatest city in the world, surrounded by loved ones. I have so many like friends who like genuinely care about me. And I was like, Lord, I have some nerve to act like you, you haven't really held me down on a personal side. One of the things my wife did over this pandemic was every day she kept a gratitude journal where she did it on Instagram, probably because she's somewhat addicted to Instagram, but that's another conversation, a different sermon. Um, but Every single day she would post what she was grateful for. And then to like read through her stories, I would be like, yo, that actually is kind of dope what God did on day 22. You know what I'm saying? Like that actually is kind of dope. And even in the midst of difficult situations, I've seen God's hand in the middle of them weaving things together. And when I zoom out a little bit to not complain and to think about God's previous works in my life, even in this past month or year, and, and make gratitude a much more intentional decision Man, like grumbling just doesn't even make sense. 
And then there's a spiritual thing that God has done for us. The Bible tells us that God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. And there was an author that talked about all of the complaints that we might have about God. And the author, I kind of felt, I kind of felt her shaking me by the shoulder, say, yo, God gave you Jesus. Like what else could he give you to express to you his faithfulness and his love and his care for you? Like what else could he give you that's better than his son? A couple months ago, I was helping out a friend and uh, uh, they called and asked for some help. And I told them like, yo, things are actually pretty crazy right now. I got a lot going on with my kids, but I'll help you out and I'll hold you down. And I got there to help them out. And like they were so behind and it really, truly was a waste of my time. And I went home that day like tight thinking to myself, and this is not a sub tweet or a sub sermon. I'm not, you know, throwing shots at someone. We've talked about this already. Um, I went home that day and talked to my wife and I was just thinking to myself like, yo, I really gave up time with my kids who did need me for this dude. You know what I'm saying? Like I gave up time with my kids who really truly needed me for this part, for, for this dude. And he just wasted my time. Like, and if he ever were to doubt, like if I really loved him and I really was there for him, like, bro, I gave up time with my kids for you. Scripture tells us that God didn't just give up time with Jesus, that God gave us his only begotten son. And when we grumble, when we complain, we discount what God has done for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God gave us his absolute best when we deserved actually judgment and, and, and penalty for our sins. Now, one of the ways that we are reminded of what God has done for us is something that the church has done for 2000 years called the sacraments. And sacraments in scripture are communion and baptism. And these are physical reminders of spiritual realities. And it is a gift to the church to practice these sacraments so we can rehearse and remember all that God has done for us. Baptism is one of these sacraments, and it is a beautiful picture and a beautiful reminder of what God has done for us, that God has removed us from our sin. As far as the East is from the West, that's how far he has removed us from our sin that we are buried with Christ and raised with him in, in new life. And if we can think of nothing else that gives us hope, let it be what God has done for us in Christ. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get the opportunity to witness some Renaissance baptisms. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, have mercy on me for my grumbling and my complaining, for thinking I know better than you do. Lord, help me to receive the fullness of all that you are to me and all that you have done for me with gratitude. God, give me the courage to grieve, um, to trust you that blessed are those who mourn, for we will be comforted. And Lord, that uh, we can continue to trust you with the direction and the totality of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.